0: The decarbonization megatrend will be probably one of the largest investment opportunity ahead of us. The output loss from climate change
1: can be 60, it can be 80%.
2: Climate is an area that needs to be central to a CEO's strategy.
3: We've often heard in this series how COVID-19 has accelerated all sorts of trends. Technology, consumption, trade, even aspects of our culture have been thrown forward by the pandemic. But our transition towards a green economy is also being fueled by a COVID effect. The virus has raised awareness of ecological issues. And as governments struggle to think of ways to pull their economies out of the downturn, many are looking to invest sustainably in things like green infrastructure. We're going to invest $1.7 trillion in securing our future so that by 2050, the United States will be 100% clean energy economy with net zero emissions. Well, that's bold. And Joe Biden's grand climate pledge made before the elections is not the only one. The European Union's Green Deal sets out 1 trillion euros towards sustainable investments. China has committed to net zero carbon emissions by 2060. These announcements point to a significant expansion of a global green market. Renewable energy, sustainable technologies, the financing of decarbonising initiatives and all the companies aligning themselves to climate goals which stand to benefit. But is it all it seems to be? Can these ambitions really be met? Some of the technology is still wishful thinking, and red tape is holding others back. What does decarbonisation mean if you're running a company? What if you can't decarbonise? And what does this growing market mean for investors and the old rules of stock picking? Listen on to find out. With me today, I have three Fidelity International experts on climate change investments. Welcome first to equities Portfolio Manager, Velislava Dimitrova. Velislava, you focus on the technologies that could help the world reach the targets laid out by the Paris Climate Agreement. Can you give me a single figure that reveals something about this effort?
0: My number is seven.
3: And what does seven stand for?
0: So to fully decarbonize the global economy, according to Goldman, we need to invest almost seven times the current U.S. GDP by 2050 decarbonization at the current cost has a price tag of 4.8 trillion per year every year out of 2050, to 2050 the cumulative 144 trillion dollars
3: mind boggling numbers mind boggling numbers can it be done really
0: It can be done and hopefully the cost will decline in the future because some of these technologies are very new, very low scale, and this is why they're so expensive. But with time, hopefully the price tag will come down.
3: Excellent. We'll come back to that. Um, Also on the line is Chris Atkinson. Chris, um, you're also a portfolio manager, but on the credit side, so sustainable fixed income, what's the number that's caught your attention?
2: Uh, My number is eight. Eight what?
3: Eight percent, and that is the
2: uh, reduction in uh, CO2 emissions that has been estimated Uh, to be caused by the lockdowns that we've enforced uh, to deal with COVID-19.
3: Well, that's good news.
2: Yeah, coincidentally, uh, it is also the annual reduction that we need to see uh, going out to 2050 uh, to meet our Paris commitments of uh, less than two degrees, or significantly less than two degrees of uh, global warming.
3: So just so I understand this correctly, the incredible crunch, the slowdown, the stoppage of all economic activity in most parts of the world, I guess, that's what you think we need to do in order to reach our targets? Hopefully not, uh, but it does give you a
2: sense of the, the, the sort of extensive activity and the effort that is required in order to address uh, climate change.
3: Okay, good context. And my third guest is Fidelity's global economist, Anna Stupnitska. Anna, you've been carrying out analysis on the green policies being touted by governments around the world and what that all means for capital markets and asset allocation in the years to come. So what's your number?
1: My number is 28%. of what? This is um, the decline in productivity on hot days, in workers' productivity. So, in other words, uh, a weekday above 30 degrees Celsius costs an average county in the United States $20 per person.
3: So, global warming will hit everybody in their pockets, but they probably won't notice because they'll be flat out having a a rest. (laughs) Um, Anna, thank you very much indeed. And thank you all for joining me today. Anna, let's start with the big picture and what climate change means for the global economy. What are the consequences?
1: Well, the consequences are really wide ranging. Uh, From my perspective, as you mentioned, I have been looking at Um, the possible impact on GDP growth and inflation and what this might mean for um, asset allocation. And um, uh, really, there are so many uncertainties and so many different scenarios. Um, But uh, it is very clear that uh, particularly if there is no mitigation, Um, and temperature continues to increase uh, and perhaps uh, increases by as much as 4 or 5 degrees by the end of the century, um, then the GDP loss uh, global can be really dramatic. Um, Some of the estimates um, uh, that I have used in uh, my own analysis suggest that the output loss from climate change can be potentially as high as 30% 30% by 2100.
3: If if nothing is done, if nothing is done to, to stop it?
1: If nothing is done under certain assumptions about climate sensitivity, but it can be more than that. It can be uh, 60, it can be 80%. I think uh, it's worth saying that uh, even though we think about uh temperature increases uh, in average terms, so we 're saying uh, well two degrees or five degrees uh geographical variability is enormous
3: well, I was going to ask that is that you know the nearer you are the equator, the worse it is and Iceland's got a bit of time.
1: Yeah, so when you map it um, on uh, GDP losses, indeed, uh, you essentially have the majority of uh, the southern hemisphere losing out. So uh, let me give you some numbers. For example, if we take Brazil, the change in GDP per capita by 2100 due to climate change can be uh, as high as 80%. Similar numbers apply to a lot of African countries. In the US, it's uh, between 30 and 40%. But then as you go north, um, Russia can actually, well, at least on this analysis, can hugely benefit from climate change as productivity increases, as um, temperature rises, and then interestingly, uh, the UK and uh, European countries are also could also be beneficiaries.
3: And how so? Can I just ask um, on that? How could they benefit from from climate change? Sounds counterintuitive. Uh,
1: Well, the assumption in uh, this analysis um, is that uh, an increase in temperatures can uh, improve uh, productivity, We're talking agricultural productivity. Well, in Russia in particular, uh, obviously some areas that are uh, not really livable now can become livable um, and productive. Uh, But I have to say, uh, looking at this analysis, I think we need to uh, be very cautious about it um, because um, this kind of analysis doesn't necessarily take into account uh, relationship between countries, right? So uh, we have trade flows, we have financial flows.
3: Migration, as well, if other places become much more difficult to live in.
1: Well, yeah, th- this would be the consequence. But um, what I mean is, for example, uh, if Brazil beham- becomes inhabitable, or, you know, most of the uh, southern hemisphere, then what happens to uh, trade flows to, uh, you know, imports uh, from those countries uh, that uh, European countries uh, uh, are benefiting from now? So it's really complicated.
3: Can I just bring Chris on, on, that, on that point?
2: Yeah. It was, it was really just on the migration point, to be honest. Actually, um, uh, I think there is some, some good estimates around uh, the impacts of climate uh, enforced uh, migration. And the UN uh, has estimated that by, by 2050, we'll be averaging around 6 million climate uh, migrants uh, per year. And uh, to put that into some sort of context and think about the impact of that, uh, the consequences of the Syrian crisis and the political changes there, uh, that caused a big uh, migration into Europe, the total number of uh, people uh, was, was 6 million over a course of about five years. So we're talking about you know, the same number of people migrating every year. Um, so I think it's, uh, the migration point is, is, is really important.
3: Anna, given all this information that um uh, you know we, we don 't just have but governments have it as well it 's pretty obvious that all governments are going to have to respond sooner or later to climate change. We heard Joe Biden at the beginning of this podcast he 's been talking about the creation of ten million new jobs in a new clean economy, almost two trillion dollars of investment. How likely is any of that? Is it just politics or is it is it going to be going to become real
1: I think this was clearly a very ambitious plan that uh, would have been more likely to become reality had we had a, um, a damn sweep um, in the US election, Democratic sweep. A Democratic mm-hmm. sweep. So, um, unfortunately, it's unlikely to be the case. However, uh, obviously, the direction of travel um, is much more positive under Biden. I think that um, we will definitely see the US rejoining the Paris Agreement, and that target to achieve uh, 100% uh, clean energy economy uh, and net emissions uh, by 2050 uh, will still be there now how it will be achieved uh, is is a different matter perhaps much more via markets uh, than via government Um, But I have to say that uh, a couple of things recently have been sort of positive and I think uh, making me feel a bit more optimistic. One is the appointment of uh, John Kerry um, as the US Special Presidential Envoy for Climate Change in the Biden administration. Um, He was the one who originally signed the Paris Agreement on behalf of the US under the Obama administration. So I think that's, that's very positive. And another theme that I think could uh, uh, also accelerate the change in the US is the uh, very strong commitment from the European Union towards decarbonization and towards uh, uh, the net zero economy by 2050. There's been a lot of momentum accelerated by COVID and uh, I believe we'll talk about it a little bit later. But I do think this is great timing for the US uh, to join the EU in a lot of those initiatives uh, and to act multilaterally to achieve uh, those targets.
3: Okay, well, we're painting a picture there of the government um, beginning to sort of position their economies to, to do the right thing. So some uncertainty about what's going on in the US, but um, progress in, in Europe and in China as well with its commitment to net zero emissions by 2060. Velislava, we need to talk about the companies. It must be pretty good news for the renewables companies and the developers of technologies that, um, uh, that help renewables.
0: Yes, it is, it is very good news, um, but we also have to keep in mind that renewable after a very long period of time when they were very heavily subsidized, already economic on a standalone basis. So this transition from thermal generation to renewables will continue. And of course, governmental support helps as well. And the, the headroom for growth ahead of us is significant. Um, I believe that even though this is one of the most often talked about clean technology out there, I believe that the potential is still underestimated. And this is because renewables have to achieve quite a few things. And despite all the noise out there, renewable generation is currently still 9% of total uh, power demand. And coal and gas represents more than half of total power demand. So by 2050, renewables have to replace all the thermal generation. But then on top of this, they also have to meet all the growing demand from emerging markets. If we are to transition our transportation fleet fully to electric vehicles or fuel cells, renewables also have to meet that demand. And on some forecasts, we will have 40% more power demand from electric vehicles. So this has to be met by, by solar, um, solar and wind. They also have to meet the demand from, currently we're heating our homes with gas. This has to transition either to electricity or to green hydrogen. Again, renewables have to meet that. On top of that, um, they have to meet the demand from green hydrogen to decarbonize the more difficult bits of the economy, like, for example, steel manufacturing, and cement manufacture. So this is quite a tall order, and we're looking at more than... 20 times more renewables needed by 2050 than the current amount of renewables we have in the system.
3: I'm beginning to build uh, a sense of, <laughs> of the story that we're, we're hearing here, which is, you know, good, you know, well done so far, but an awful lot more to do. Um, Chris, I mean, the companies that, that, that you look at, um, because this goes across the, um, the the whole spectrum, doesn't it? It's not just companies that are, you know, doing power generation or, or involved in, in in oil and gas, say. Um, are companies ready? Do they realise what they've still got to do?
2: Yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, companies are moving at uh, pretty different speeds. And there is some disparity, particularly regional disparity between, for example, European companies, I think, are at the uh, the cutting edge of, Uh, of sustainability. Um, Outside of Europe, in in, in the US and in Asia, I think uh, there's still some way to to catch up. And maybe one way to contextualize this is uh, to think about the science-based targets. So uh, the science-based target initiative is a a way of companies having their decarbonization targets verified. There's about 1,000 companies, just 1,100 companies who have have signed up to a a science-based commitment. About 50% of those are European. Uh, and then twenty percent uh, North American, twenty percent Asian. So there's still a lot of catching up to be done uh, outside of uh, of Europe. Um, now, obviously, you know that's not to say that within uh, those regions, US and uh, and Asia, there aren't some very good companies. There are uh, with with some very strong commitments. You know, Apple, Microsoft in in, in the US, Lenovo in uh, in Asia. But once you get outside of those leaders. Uh, there is very much a sort of a rapid fall off in in companies that have strong commitments to decarbonisation and and therefore preparedness um, for for the impacts of
3: climate policies and climate change. One of the one of the many interesting aspects of your job, I'm sure, is that you get to talk to company managements and um, to understand how they're thinking and, um, I, I suppose, how that thinking is developing. What's your impression? Um, you know, is this the year that it's sunk in to chief executives, to chief financial officers, what they've got to do?
2: Yeah, I think that's that's a really good question. I think, um, uh, you know, if you, if you roll back a couple of years uh, and you, you go into a company meeting, and you ask a sustainability question, or you ask a climate-related question, and then the CEO, the CFO would, would generally turn to their investor relations team and, and look for them to, to answer that question. Uh, it's been very apparent in the last couple of years that we've seen a big uh, acceptance uh, in um, in sustainability and climate as an area that needs to be central to a CEOs. Strategy. And I think part of that speaks to the growth in, in assets. And this year, in particular, I mean, you, you question, um around uh, the impact of COVID. Um, we've seen a big increase in ESG related assets. It's assets going into um, sustainable products has been much stickier, much uh, stronger flows uh, than we've seen in previous years. To give you some uh, number you know, in the US, growth into um, US corporate funds uh, with a sustainable label is 140% uh, this year. Now, that starts off from a, a very low base. So just a uh, caveat that you know, still around only one percent compared to say twenty six percent in Europe. But nevertheless, that is that is really forcing CEOs to take uh, sustainability more seriously.
3: It's going in the right direction, and um, that, as you say, forcing company um, bosses to uh, to take note. Um, can you give me? Can we put you on the spot here? Can you give me an example of um, a striking damascene conversion of a company that you didn't expect to to get it? Um, who who now do? There's,
2: there's quite a few actually. I think one of the the you know, the area that I think is most interesting and possibly most controversial is in, is in the energy space. We've already talked a little bit about uh, renewables. but if you think about some of the European oil and gas majors who've begun uh, some fairly major transformations away from fossil fuels and towards uh, renewables. so uh, I'll give you one example that obviously has some uh, fairly uh, significant historical controversies BP um, announced earlier this year that they were going to invest around five billion per annum um, in, in renewable technology. Uh, put that into context, their total capex spend is about 12 billion. So that's a significant portion of their of their investment spend. And at the same time, they're going to be running down uh, their uh, their oil and gas production as they shift to renewables. Another example might be Volkswagen, yeah, obviously uh, very much in the uh, headlights, if you excuse the pun, of the, of the dieselgate scandal. I won't, but carry on. <laughs> um you know uh, they have undertaken enormous investments to roll out their ev platform um more significantly than that they're also decarbonizing their supply chain but also the power that goes into those vehicles because if you fill um electric vehicles with with dirty power uh then it's no better than a
3: diesel car so two very well-known names can you surprise me with a company that i haven't heard of that's done a big big change
2: uh, I mean, there's, there's examples uh, all over the world. We're having a conversation with a of our analysts in um, Asia around a company called Star Energy. Uh, Star Energy used to be a, a, an oil and gas company, or its, it's uh, heritage is in, in oil and gas. They've undertaken a lot of investment in geothermal. So uh, actually now we can uh, purchase bonds that are in a sort of project finance, so in a, a ring-fenced entity. Uh, that just finances the the geothermal assets in uh, in Indonesia. So this is uh, the country that Star Energy is based in.
3: And Velislav, what happens to share prices when these leopards change their spots, the way that uh, that Chris was was setting out there, or when countries announce big changes to the the rules and the regulations in a in a particular economy?
0: This year, 2020 has been a very good example of what exactly happens because it has been an unprecedented year of. Uh, tailwinds behind green technologies because of uh, government's stimulus um, targeted to those technologies globally, but also because of increasing investor focus on sustainability. So to give an example, a basket of um, very clean place on uh, renewables and on electric vehicles. Last year, 2019, that basket outperformed the global market by about 2%. Uh So far this year, the same basket has outperformed the global market by more than eighty percent. Wow, now, some of that performance is justified. Some of those companies, let's take for example flat glass this is a company that is making glass for solar panels. It has seen its earnings revised up by more than 50% because uh, now uh, panels that have glass on both sides are, are increasing their penetration versus panels with one-sided glass. So uh, good performance is fair. But some other companies like, for example, a company called Neo in China making electric vehicles has seen its share price appreciate by more than seven times. And this is on a little more than hope that it will take significant market share of electric vehicles in China. Currently, it's manufacturing forty thousand vehicles, um, and it doesn't really have a significant technological advantage. So it seems like the tide has lifted not all, but most boats.
3: Yes, they're, they're, they're riding the wave of, uh, of enthusiasm. And actually, Anna, I want to come to you on this because uh, twenty twenty has been, as we, we will, you know, we, we we keep saying, an exceptional year, an unusual year. What effect has the pandemic had on this trend? Because people at all levels of society seem to have woken up to some home truth this year. Has it given global institutions uh, a nudge, a push or a shove even when you think of of, of institutions like the IMF?
1: Yes, Richard, uh, this is a great question. We had uh The IMF, uh, for example, in its World Economic Outlook this October, October 2020, uh, talking about potential policies um, that uh, could uh, um, help with the recovery from the pandemic and at the same time, help with um, uh, reducing greenhouse emissions um, and moving closer to those climate change targets. Um, And interestingly, in one scenario, the IMF showed that um, a combination of different policies, which would include uh, gradually rising carbon taxes, And uh, some um, uh, green fiscal stimulus, which would consist of um, green infrastructure investment, as well as some subsidies for renewables, um, would actually result... uh, in a net or in a very small um, output loss over the next few decades versus a scenario where no mitigation is done that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. So um, uh, they argue that uh, a well-designed mitigation package can avoid those uh, very uh, high output losses and at the same time create. Millions of jobs uh, to help sustain the recovery after the pandemic.
3: I'm interested in what's happened to all of the the research and development, all of the advances that you might normally expect in in this area, when companies, you know, many of them have either either shut down or people have been doing what they can from home. Um, Velislava, has it has it stopped the progress that you'd been seeing previously?
0: Um, So, Covid hasn't really impacted much R&D of those technologies in any way, because for many people it's possible to work from home and advancement has continued. But what Covid has changed is the pace of adoption of those technologies. Um, And it has changed the pace of adoption for a a couple of reasons. And the first one is, um, as we discussed, the increased stimulus because of, of, of Covid has actually gone into green technologies, like the European Green Deal, for example. Um, All of that is going to renewables, green hydrogen, insulation, etc. But there is also another reason, and this is that COVID has accelerated our adoption of technology. So working from home, remote healthcare, remote learning, all these are things with lower carbon footprint than the alternative of traveling to the office. Um, Now, some of that will probably uh, go back to our old ways when hopefully the the virus um, issue is resolved. But some of it, I believe, will stay around, as uh, we can see from a range of companies that have changed permanently their flexible working and remote working policies. And because of that trend, we have also seen accelerated adoption of the cloud. And this is another technology that has significantly lower carbon footprint than the alternative of on-premise enterprise data centers. The cloud has also put a question mark on the lean supply chain, the lean manufacturing model. Uh, because it has shown how vulnerable the system is to exogenous shocks. And now the focus is much more on resilient supply chains and on onshoring. And because of that trend, we will see a faster penetration of industrial automation. And this is another technology that has significant carbon saving potential.
3: Chris, I just want to um, explore this a little bit further. Has the pandemic, has the fact that companies have seen you know, their entire business, in many cases, completely upended, has that uh, changed the focus of, um, of management teams from doing the right thing around decarbonisation, say, to bare survival? Uh, you know, they've got different things they've got to sort out.
2: I think when we started the, the crisis, when we started the, the lockdown, and there was a lot of concerns around... Uh, green investment strategies and plans being put on hold uh, as uh, as companies preserve cash flow in in the face of unprecedented levels of uncertainty. I think those fears have, have largely dissipated, and what we've what we've seen is that although capex, for example, has been reined back um, by by many companies, and of course they've taken uh, significant um, uh, opex savings as well, the areas that they continue to invest in have been within the uh, the green and, and the renewable space. I think recognizing some of those uh, large structural uh, features of, of decarbonization that ultimately will, will threaten their business model as uh, as they move forward. And my example, and I think we've already touched on uh, energy. You think about the the transition of many of the of the oil majors. Um, you know, the capex in 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 the energy space has fallen by about 18, 20 percent. But all of that has been borne by by fossil fuels, and actually renewable. Um, uh, capex has continued to, to increase. As a consequence of that, next year we expect the level of investment in uh, in renewable energy uh, to be on a par with with that of fossil fuels for, for the first time ever.
0: If we are talking about a company that is struggling financially because of COVID, it would make sense for them to accelerate a transition to green technology because, um, as I mentioned previously, some of them are now cheaper than the legacy technology. So now it is cheaper to build a wind or solar farm that it is continuing to run your coal and gas stations so actually you can achieve savings by transitioning to some of those technologies
3: and Anna if you look at the the big institutions we talked about the IMF um, but there are also plenty of central banks um, that have uh, had to think very carefully about um, how they bolster the the economies that they look after what sort of action are they taking
1: well in terms of um COVID-related action, obviously, we we know there's been a lot of easing uh, and also encouraging uh, governments to borrow at this very, very low interest rates and to invest to, to more productive uses. Um, one interesting development uh, over the past year, I think, has been uh, the focus from a lot of central banks on what climate change might mean for uh, monetary policy making. So, I, I, I do think that. Um Uh, COVID has been a catalyst. Obviously, we know uh, central banks were talking about it before, but I think it has been um, a catalyst uh, in uh, accelerating this kind of analysis. Uh, I was looking at a number of very interesting papers produced by the Network for Greening the Financial System. Uh, This is a network of the major central banks, and they are trying to understand what different um, uh, climate risks, uh, including extreme weather events, uh, global warming, etc., etc., what impact uh, this event might have for uh, those main economic variables. The central banks uh, look at natural interest uh, rate, um, potential output, productivity, uh, inflation, inflation expectations, etc., because all this will have an effect on the economy and on the models that the central banks are using. And I think there's been a um, realization that actually uh, all this uh, needs to be understood better, because it's not the the story for the end of the century, it, it's the story for the next few years.
2: If I can just jump in there, actually, I think there was one other point around uh, the sort of greening of central bank policy that, that continues to be rumoured, speculated, if you like, um, is, is whether or not quantitative easing should have a, a green tint to it. In other words, the sort of idea that the ECB should focus its um, asset purchases on, on green bonds, for example, and that's part of the reason why we've had um, this uh, EU taxonomy, which defines what it is to, to be green in order to facilitate that ultimately. And that, of course, would um, have a significant impact on the pricing of those securities relative to what could be um, classified as, as brown or uh, grey bonds. Um, the problem there is really just around the size of the green bond market. It just isn't large enough yet to, to have a meaningful um, impact. But as we see uh, the green bond market grow, then then perhaps That sort of uh, green QE could be something that uh, is explored in future.
1: And the stimulus, the uh, COVID-related stimulus uh, from the EU uh, will be contributing to the growing um, market for green bonds. As we know, the uh, recovery and resilience facility that uh, is the centerpiece Uh, for the recovery initiative uh, in the euro area um, which is just uh, uh, being well hopefully will be approved perhaps later this year or in the first quarter of next year it aims to repair the economic and social damage brought about by the pandemic uh, via Green investment, essentially, uh, and uh, uh, a large part of those funds will be raised in the markets. Um, so, I think creating that uh, the the pool of um, assets for the ECB to buy potentially uh, is 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 one way uh, that this facility can contribute to all those climate change targets. <music>
3: Those are the possibilities for the um, the big institutions, um, the investments that they could make. Chris, what um, options are there available to a fixed income uh, investor? We, we've heard about green bonds. How is the market developing? What's What's new?
2: There are a lot of developments in the in the uh, labelled bond space, uh, for one of a better word. I think the. Um, yeah, you know, The green bond market now is, uh, as of this quarter, probably uh, in fact in the last few weeks, has just uh, gone past um, uh, $1 trillion in size. So it's achieved that over the course of uh, a decade, um, but most of the growth has occurred in, in really the last five years since uh, the Paris Agreement was struck and the uh, ICMA Green Bond Principles uh, were agreed. Um, now, when you think about what is the sort of liquid portion of the market, the sort of benchmark eligible part, that's, that's about two thirds of that, of that one trillion. But the problem, as I've uh, already uh, uh, alluded to, is that the market is still relatively small in the, in the context of uh, the global fixed income markets, or less than, less than 2% of uh, uh, the global uh, um, aggregate uh, benchmark. And as a consequence of that, what, what happens is you tend to see green bonds pricing at a premium uh, to, um, uh, to to non green bonds, they they have a lower yield. In other words, which of course, if you're a green investor, um, you're not going to be very happy about. One of the other problems, um, and it's led to some further developments in the in the in the bond space, has been that um, uh, the the green bond market has been unwilling to accept uh, uh, companies from hard to abate sectors. Um, dirty sectors, for, for want of a better word, in the green bond space, irrespective of whether or not they're investing in something genuinely environmentally positive. Um, and so, what we've seen uh, arising from that is something called the transition bond. And there are two types of transition bond. The first is a, a use of proceeds approach, where you say, okay, we are, we are a company that is inherently carbon intensive. You know, we are not in a position to go net zero yet, but there are some things that we can do to reduce our carbon emissions. A company like you know Cadent, for example, in the UK, is a UK uh, distribution gas distribution network, they are um, preparing their network for hydrogen. So that's a good example of a, a transition use of proceeds. And the other approach is um, what is called a KPI-linked bond or a SDG-linked bond, a Sustainable Development Goal-linked bond. These are uh, bonds that um, set explicit targets, for example, around decarbonisation, percentage of renewables in the business, um, and they link the uh, return on the bond to the performance of those objectives, so either through a step or a lowering of the coupon, um, or increasing or, or decreasing the amount of capital that is returned to investors um, at the at the maturity.
3: And are these being welcomed by investors? These these new forms.
2: Yeah, they're, they're, they're definitely being welcomed, and they've uh, they've, they've performed uh, pretty well. I think there's some you know some good examples. You might have heard of um, uh, Chanel, for example, mis- issued an SDG. Uh, linked Bond uh, recently, you know, some uh, other companies such as NL, uh, the Italian utility, you know, they they have they have issued and they have performed well. However, it's still a very very small part of the market. And it, it is growing, but I think we need to see further advances. We have heard uh, that Total, the, uh, the French oil and gas company, is planning to issue one of these KPI-linked bonds. That would be a really interesting test of the market. Um, clearly, they have the potential, the size of the balance sheet, that they could do something of, of, of significant size. But you know, it's still very in the very early stages. I think one thing that, it, that the problem around that, of course, is that you know, if you think about green bonds, there was this accusation of greenwashing very early on in that market. Think about a transition bond, that greenwashing risk is even higher. If you take an oil and gas company and say we're doing a transition bond, a lot of people are going to raise their eyebrows and say, well, yeah, whatever. Um, I'm not sure I believe you and your, your decarbonization objectives. So as a result of that, we've seen the imposition of standards, um, voluntary standards um, by ICMA, for example, or the uh, climate bond Um, initiative of release standards
3: that uh, that companies can adhere to. So hopefully that will encourage the growth of the market, but we're still in very early days. And very slow, on the equity side... You talked earlier about the outperformance of uh, of companies that have got a good sustainability aspect of their business. Is there a danger of it becoming a crowded market? Because they, the number of companies that are, are verifiably behaving in a sustainable way is, is smaller than the entire universe, of course.
0: Yes. So if you look at the performance so far this year, you can say that, that yes, maybe some of those areas like renewables and electric vehicles have become slightly overheated. Um, But you would expect that in a long transition like that, to have periods like that. Uh, So you might have a period of consolidation. But what is important is the range of investment options out there. It is not only renewables and electric vehicles. There are many, many other areas that for some reason or other might have attracted less attention recently than than others. For example, insulation in the US, uh, platforms for selling, let's say, secondhand uh, consumer goods, because there has been less regulatory support in the US than in Europe, these haven't done as well. So there, um, there is a very wide range of investment options on the table, and it's not limited to the couple that have done extremely well this year. And I guess the second point to make here is that the size of the investment opportunity is significant. So one year of extremely good performance doesn't mean that the opportunities are not there. Um, As I mentioned, we need more than 20 times more renewables out to 2050 than we currently have. This is a huge investment opportunity. Another one um, uh, I would like to point to is green hydrogen. Based on uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance estimates, we might have up to 25% of global energy needs met by green hydrogen from close to zero today. So again, this is a, a very large space, and the companies involved in those technologies will continue to increase as these technologies uh, get further down the uh, development uh, curve and, and as the opportunity increases, there'll be more and more companies involved. So I believe that the decarbonization megatrend will be probably one of the largest investment opportunity ahead of us
3: good and In that market, very briefly, what's the approach that you take in deciding whether to to go with one company's story over another?
0: So we look for companies that are exposed to uh, part of the value chain of those technologies. And we try to find companies that are um, as pure as possible. Now, because some of these technologies are so early stage, it can be difficult. For example, green hydrogen is very, very early and some of those companies are very small. And sometimes it's not possible. You have to find companies that have extremely small exposure or or are small. But we try to find as pure companies as possible. And we're looking at uh, only those technologies that provide a step change in our emissions. For example, all internal combustion vehicles out there have tougher and tougher emission standards and are getting better over time. But we're not interested in that. We're interested in the companies that are involved with technologies that uh, provide a step change in emissions, like electric vehicle, for example, that can offer more than 50% carbon reduction versus an internal combustion uh, vehicle.
3: Well, to wrap up, I'd like you all to tell me, first of all, where you see the most promising or the most exciting segments of this market, and then what the biggest risks might be. Anna, first of all, to you, what do you think is going to make the biggest difference in this drive to decarbonize?
1: I think um, for me as a macroeconomist, the risk or the opportunity of carbon border adjustment tax is something that we should really think about.
3: Can you explain it briefly? Yeah,
1: so this is um, in the current uh, Plan that the EU is trying to implement uh, potentially sometime next year. Um, This is essentially a fee or a tax uh, imposed uh, on polluting imported goods. So the EU is thinking about uh, steel, cement and electricity. Uh, So essentially taxing those imports based on the amount of carbon footprint that they uh, estimate to have
3: produced. And why is it so exciting?
1: Well, it's exciting because it's going to be one of the, uh, I think, very effective ways to reduce uh, carbon emissions. And also it's going to have uh, really significant implications for global trade. Just think China... Uh, and all those uh, imports coming from China, uh, they're going to be more expensive. So, this means that there will be different opportunities within uh, sectors domestically, within the EU. And I, I also think that the US, I talked about uh, great timing uh, for the US to join a number of EU initiatives. And I think this is something that Biden could also potentially consider. This will have implications for uh, sectors, economies, but also for uh, global inflation. Uh, something that could potentially create risks of inflation moving to the
0: upside.
3: Ah, okay. Everything's connected. Velislava, what are you excited about?
0: So in terms of the decarbonization potential, one of the most exciting ones is green hydrogen. And green hydrogen has a very long history, but investors have started to pay more attention uh, to it very recently. And the reason is that costs seem to be declining much faster than previously thought And this is because of the very uh, uh, fast decline of the cost of wind and solar, which is the main input to green hydrogen. And on some estimates, green hydrogen will be economic versus grey hydrogen. Grey hydrogen is making hydrogen from gas um, by 2030. But I have even seen estimates of 2025 in some regions around the world where you have very cheap solar and wind. And it is very exciting because it has potential to decarbonize parts of the economy where previously there was just no solution, um, like manufacturing steel and cement and ammonia and decarbonizing uh, our heating. You can heat a house with electricity or with green hydrogen. Uh, green hydrogen can be used to decarbonize parts of the transportation fleet where using batteries is very difficult because of the size of the battery that is required, like trains and rail and shipping. Um, so uh, it's also possible to increase penetration of renewables close to 100% when you use green hydrogen in storage. And it's not possible to use batteries for long-term storage. So it's it's extremely exciting technology. Um, and as I mentioned previously, there are some estimates that green hydrogen can account up to 25% of our energy needs by, by 2050.
3: And what are you a little bit more wary of?
0: So one thing I feel we as investors don't pay sufficient attention to is... The price of carbon um, and currently there are a few different uh, cap and trade carbon schemes globally they 're not connected and If you look at the average price of carbon in those schemes earlier this year was around nineteen to twenty dollars per ton. Um, But the World Bank has estimated that that price has to be two and a half to five times higher by 2030 if we are to meet the Paris Agreement. And I don't feel that this is really captured in people's estimates when they think about those companies that are exposed to this risk. And another risk is that these schemes are likely to increase their scope to include sectors that are currently not included. Currently, they're all mostly targeted at... Uh, Utilities uh, and some very heavy polluters, industrials. But these schemes are likely to expand, maybe including um, airlines and other industries. Uh, And the European Union is discussing that option. And this uh, this is the case for China as well. China, China is currently running a pilot scheme in seven different regions but they are this year planning and next year planning to roll this out countrywide and to include more and more sectors. So I feel that in terms of decarbonization is presenting a very big risk to some legacy business models, very carbon intensive heavy uh, business models. Um, And this risk is from the Price of carbon.
3: Interesting, uh, interesting warning there. And your answers are very elemental as well: Um, carbon on the one hand and hydrogen on the other. Um, Chris, let me come to you finally. Um, What's the the main opportunity that um, that you are excited by?
2: Um, So, so I would agree with the 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 green hydrogen uh, example. I think that is a tremendously exciting opportunity. But of course, as uh, as credit investors. Um, we, we, we take all of the, uh, the, or bear a lot of the risk of, uh, of, of investment, but we don't share any of the upside. So, um, you know, what we're looking for is is companies, you know, you know that maybe are pursuing changes in, in the way that they do business, but where they're hosted within a, a balance sheet in a company uh, and cash flows that are able to support that um, investment. So in the hydrogen space, for example, some of the large um, industrial gases companies, such as Air Products or, or Lynda. Um, I think are good examples of the way a credit investor can buy into that theme. But that sort of then feeds more broadly into what we're looking for, which is that transition opportunity. So companies uh, that uh, maybe are not uh, well liked by the market at the moment because they are perceived to be dirty or carbon intensive who are shifting their business model into greener technologies. And those opportunities occur in every single sector. There there isn't a sector uh, globally that won't be impacted by the decarbonisation objectives. Uh, So we're really looking for those as a a way of generating alpha within our our credit portfolios. And I think just as um, indicated earlier on about you know valuations within the equity space reflecting some of these mega trends. Uh, the, the same is also true uh, of fixed income. You can now see you know very large, highly rated um, oil and gas companies such as Exxon, for example, you know trading at a higher yield than much lower rated renewable companies such as Ørsted, uh, the, the, the Danish um, offshore wind producer. Identifying those companies that are transforming. Uh, will be uh, a good way of generating uh, returns uh, in the future.
3: And as you reminded us, um, as a fixed income uh, in- investor, always the eores of, uh, of investment. You're looking for the risks at every turn. Um, what's keeping you up at night? Uh, I mean,
2: it, it really very simple, just not, not moving fast enough in terms of the, the transformation that clearly will uh, you know, pose physical and, and, and transition risks for, for all business models. If we are too slow, then ultimately governments will be forced to act. And I think that ties into what, Danislava was saying about carbon uh, prices we saw an example of that uh, recently with the the UK government imposing that 2030 limit on uh, new uh, internal combustion uh, engines uh, being sold in the UK. We should expect more of that as we move forward. Regulation will catch
3: up to deal with these problems if we don't uh, if we do not do it ourselves. A very real thing to, to think about there as we, as we end. That's all we've got time for now. Um, if you'd like to read more on sustainable investing, then go to our website, fidelityinternational.com. There's much more to listen to, of course, on both our award-winning Fidelity Answers and Rich Pickings podcast. Just search for those titles on your podcast app. Thanks very much indeed to my guests today, Velislava Dimitrova, Chris Atkinson and Anna Stupnitska, the producer was Seb Morton-Clark with production support from Alex Wilcox and Madison Fletcher. From all of us at Fidelity International, goodbye.